Hey, pull up a chair. Attacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. All right, Hackaroos, we are here with a new episode of Hacks on Tap. Axe, how are you? What's going on? And why don't you introduce our amazing, you've heard him before by popular acclaim, uh, guest hack today. Well, Mike Murphy, that guest <laughs> is John Heilman of the Circus, of uh, MSNBC, of The Recount, a guy who needs three jobs. He's so big. Uh, John, it's, it's good to have you back. First of all, thank you for having me back. I, I, I realized that Rom, Gibbs, Wagner, McKinnon all must have been busy this week. Thank you so thank you for making <laughs> thank, you, thank you for making time for me. Was, my, uh, well, you, you, know. you slip us to fifty bucks. That makes all the difference here. You know, as you guys know, I'm a hacks addict. So I, I guys, we gotta talk about coronavirus. Uh, we knew from the beginning that it was deadly, uh, but now it increasingly appears that it's deadly to Donald Trump's re-election chances, the way he's handled it, the way he continues to handle it, and the resurgence of the virus, particularly in the places where he needs to do well, uh, all seem like a real dilemma for him. You know, you think back, guys, I remember we did uh, an episode of this show at maybe the end of March, early April, and we all talked about, you know, the coronavirus was affecting blue America almost exclusively at that point. It was like, New York was getting crushed. California was getting crushed. Michigan, um, uh, you know, Washington State. Those were the main places. And we all we looked at, and the culture war was already starting around masks. And and Trump was, you could see, you know, McConnell was talking about, you know, the the blue bailout states and and the coronavirus bailout is a blue thing. And you could see the partisanship uh, dividing along these partisan lines. And and we said we no geniuses on this call. We're hacks, right? We all said <laughs> no, no, no. Wait. Keep going with the genius thing. I, I like the way you're going there. <laughs> but you're right. We were pounding on this like a drum. It was going right. to move to the red states where they only had economic pain, but they were going to eventually get the biological pain. And here we are. Yes. And here we are. And like, and now for once we can all say, wow, we're really prescient because, you know, you look around <laughs> now, look at what's happening across the Southwest. It's like, look at, you know, look at North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Texas, Arizona, um, you know, Houston, Dallas. I mean, I know that I said Texas already, but, and then, you know, the other states that are even deeper red, but it's now a red state phenomenon, a red and a purple state phenomenon. There's, you know, there's obviously some resurgence in California, but mostly it's it's whipping across states that Trump either should absolutely win mm-hmm. and certainly must win, like Georgia and, and Texas, and other states where if he loses just a couple of them, like Florida or Arizona, you know, it doesn't really matter what happens now in the upper Midwest if he's if those states are bleeding. And you see the political peril is just rising with the coronavirus case count in these places that Trump needs to win. And the governors who followed his lead, there's a huge backlash against people like DeSantis and Abbott, and especially in the big cities. It's it's a, desire, a dire situation, not just for Trump, but for, I would say, a lot of the Republican Party. Yeah, I, I would say right now, and again, we got well over 100 days to go, so there are wheels that can turn. But he, he is in a quagmire that he doesn't seem to have any tools to be able to get out of. They're running media in places like Ohio, which is complete defense. And Georgia. Georgia, exactly. There's nowhere the Trump campaign is anywhere near on offense right now. They are, they're in the equivalent of the you know defensive crouch huddled under the table, uh, just taking a beating. He, he, he apparently has one tool, and that's a shovel, and he just keeps <laughs> digging. He was in Arizona last week, you know, as this thing was really exploding there and he uh speaks to a group 3000 young people 
uh, you know, shoved in cheek to jowl in a mega church there. No masks. He's wearing no masks. He's joking about the virus. And you can see it in his numbers. You can see, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the, his, his number on handling the virus has just plummeted to the low 30s. And then, uh, you know, and he sends Pence out at the end of the week. I think we've got some tape of this. Just the incredible juxtaposition of Mike Pence going up there uh, trying to uh, uh, impart Donald Trump's happy horse shit about this virus. And then uh, Tony Fauci following him with the reality check. So let's take a listen to that. The truth is we did slow the spread. We flattened the curve. We saved lives. We are facing a serious problem. If we don't extinguish the outbreak, even ones that are doing well are going to be vulnerable to the spread. And the only way we're going to end it is by ending it together. In that little exchange there, Pence also said all 50 states are opening up and it's going and essentially said it's going well, which was unbelievable. I mean, we've got 34 states, I think, that are uh, where the virus is increasing. And uh, as uh, as John said, in in some states, they're really facing emergency situations, many of them in his own home turf. So. Uh, I mean, that was that was mind boggling. And I don't think it was lost on people. We're, we're totally through the looking glass right now. You know, if I were Pence, I would put out a press release that sadly I'm going on a ventilator just so we can't talk anymore. Because it's like they're having an auction of self-destruction because Pence, you know, always bucking for the cover of Suck Up magazine. It's just following Trump right into the right into the mess here. But yeah, it, it is becoming now that people are savvier about this thing. And we were through the, you know, the crisis in Chicago, Detroit, and New York, northern New Jersey. Uh, and now, it, now it's coming to them. Uh, it's put such a microscope on just the massive, crazy, through the looking glass incompetence here that I I don't know how Trump shakes this. I just say it's even more telling that Pence, you know, after that event on Friday, just in the last, you know, 72 hours, Pence is in a different place. All of a sudden, Pence has now got the mask on. Yeah, and he's con- yeah. and he's congratulating governors. I'm not trying to give Pence credit. I'm trying to just point no. You're to- right. You're right. He did a he did a 180 after Friday. Correct. It's like Pence at least is. I think there's the a huge story here, which is that Republicans in the Senate, Republicans and a big chunk of people in the White House in the last 72 hours have looked up and said, "Man, they, it, the light has gone on. That they are just fucked politically." And you see Pence. You know, suddenly he's got the mask on. He's delaying his his campaign trips. He's on the phone with governors yesterday, congratulating the ones who are closing back down their economies. He's like now suddenly racing off of the Trump reservation and not echoing anti-mask, not echoing economy open full speed ahead. And I'm, again, I'm not giving him credit. I'm more just saying Pence's the moment where Pence is like, maybe my political future is not aligned 100 percent with Donald Trump seems to be dawning at this very moment. But I'll tell you something, Pence, uh, notwithstanding, the, the man in charge spent his weekend tweeting racist, racist stuff, he, including, by the way, this uh, clip. This, this, this was unbelievable. On Sunday morning, he tweets out a clip of a guy in a golf cart with Trump signs on his golf cart, and he was sh- shouting white power, and uh, he got beaten up by uh, for that. Tim Scott, one of his own party, said he should take it down right away. It took him three hours to get it down. And then the White House's explanation was, 
that the president couldn't hear <laughs> what the guy was saying. I just want to play that clip for you guys because you 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 know you guys you got reason you have reasonably good hearing, but not exceptional. I would bet. Uh, tell me what you hear. You know, I'm actually a contrarian on this one. What, what I heard was the sound of freedom. No, of course. You know, the problem is we're <laughs> at like the 800th inappropriate non-presidential tweet now. But th this one was really special because we're in a moment of such tension. Now, I will say I saw that video because that that's down in the villages, my old stomping ground in Florida politics. And, in Florida. Yeah, it's a yeah. huge area. It used to have a political boss that ran it. It's kind of a that's, weird that's mix a of. It's a retirement home. Yeah. It, and it's, you know, it, it, Murphy, it, is that really your stomping well, it may be soon, uh, particularly He's planning with that hearing. Uh, but no, my point is, it's a big thing in Broward County politics. It's, it's kind of like the Brooklyn machine retired in Florida. I mean, it's a fascinating place. But I watched it, and it kind of broke my heart about where Trump has brought us. Because on one hand, you had a bunch of Trump people in golf carts with Trump stuff on them. By the way, free country. They get to do that. I was not offended by it. Yeah, sure. Then you had a bunch of people screaming Nazi at him. I, I, I thought the, the people screaming at him were even, even less polite than the, the, uh, the people in the Trump caravan. I, I thought they were horrible. Then you get the one guy baiting the other guy, and he starts yelling the racist stuff. And that, the very lowest point of a low moment, that is what Trump decides to retweet to America, the president of the United States. So on every level, it was just a, a horrible moment of where our politics are. My point was, and I think he's badly damaged himself. His, his ratings on, on race and uh, race relations is, are also uh, abysmal. And, he, you know, you look at polling and that's another thing that's dragging him down. But what was remarkable to me was the story that America was focused on on the weekend was this a re-explosion of the virus mm -hmm. and what a crisis it was. And the guy in charge was busy tweeting this crap and... Uh, yeah, trying to start a race war because he thinks that's a winner for him. Right, that's the thing. That's the thing. That's the part that, Mike, I agree with you, that, you know, Donald Trump, lowest point, lowest moment at a low point or lowest point of low moment, it's like the whole, that's a descriptor for the whole of the Trump administration, basically, right? For the country. But this is the reality. And we report these things every time he does another racist thing. We report it as if it's like news. And I'm, I, I think we should call them out every time. But no one should be surprised. Yeah. He's a stone. He's a stone racist and has been his whole life. And he is now desperate. We have reporting coming out of the White House. There's reporting that I hear all the time. They are panicking. They recognize that all of a sudden the chickens have come home to roost on three and a half years of the division strategy, not trying to, yeah. not trying to add to your coalition, not doing what any president tries to do, especially one who gets elected by having lost the popular vote. You know, you think about George W. Bush in 2001, you think about Bill Clinton in 1993. What do those guys do when they get into office? They're like, well, I got to add some people to my coalition. Right. Trump has right. not tried to add a single person and instead has thought that the way to win is to focus on the base and divide the country. And now, as he's desperately in a place where 75% of the country is in favor of Black Lives Matter, I mean, Trump's never going to fix that problem. So he's going full on racist race war let's let's go then their their strategy which they're broadcasting to everybody is the only way we can win is to drag out of the 
dig down into the subterranean core of the earth and pull out a bunch of white non-college racist Trump voters in in a handful of states and, yeah. and run. And that's, that was always sort of their strategy, but it's even that on steroids now. He's not even trying anymore to, to reach into any part of the country that didn't support him before. Yeah, but, you know, here's here's the thing that's different. In this post-George Floyd moment, the, you know, there are a lot of people who uh, who are willing to overlook that they would say, look, I don't like his tweets. I don't like his behavior. I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable on the race stuff. But, you know, the economy's going well. He's a strong guy. You know, he know he's he, he can get things done. Uh, and now not only is he proving himself neither strong nor being able to get things done, but the cost of that divisiveness is now very, very obvious. And people who used to be saying, you know what? I don't like it, but there are other things uh, are now saying it's cost. It costs too much. Yeah. He's, he's throwing gasoline on a fire. We don't need. I, I think that it's the earache theory, which is, oh, God, I'd like to get some sleep. I'm tired of my ear hurting every day. There's just a fatigue with Trump. He, he's also in, a, in an amazing demographic vice because none of the race war stuff works under 40. You know, little pockets, but it's really hard because the generation coming up is a lot different in kind of their racial attitudes. And, of course, that's been really um, amplified by the protest and Floyd and, and all those things. And then grumpy old white people who should be his base, that group, he is underperforming what he ought to be doing. I don't know if it's COVID or an affinity with Biden, who's also an old white guy, but he's getting it on both sides. And you're right. He... He, he is, he, 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 that strategy doesn't have the oxygen it used to have. Now that said, if I were the Democrats, I'd still manage my risk. Uh, cause you know, when it comes down to Mount Clemens, Michigan, Pasco County, Florida, uh, this thing, cause as you guys know, well, Alexander Hamilton's uncredited invention, the electoral college never made the musical. Uh, there, there are pockets there that if the Drem Dems play and do the other half of this, which is big movement lefty stuff, then I think Trump could get some traction. So deny him the traction. Uh, but I agree. But just just to expand on the one point, which is like, you know, actually, you and I have talked a lot over the last few years about like the notion of exhaustion, right? That mm -hmm. that that what this election would be or what it looked like it would be about was yeah. people exhausted with Trump. And that's Murphy's right. earache theory. I think your right. point is a little bit now. It's a little bit different. It's not just the people who are exhausted and tired of listening to Trump, which was always there. And you thought that if you could find a Democratic nominee who could promise to take people to just calm the country down and bring the country back to something that 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 would take us back to it to the normal that we had the imperfect normal that we had that people would want to go back and that that would be a winning strategy i think the thing you just said about the cost is what is now making this is, put, is putting this election increasingly out of reach for trump because people it's not just that they have an earache and it's not just that they're sick of listening to him and the chaos doesn't just tire them out they're starting to look at it and, and say this guy's breaking the country in a way that might not be recoverable. And I think a lot of normal voters who normally didn't think that before, they thought, well, we like the economy, but we don't like the pain in our ear, are now saying, this guy's on the, is potentially the chaos has a too cost high. that yeah. could be, that could be way too yeah. high and that we don't want to live in a place, if we have four more years of this guy and this continues, that the country could be rendered unrecognizable and I don't want the country to be rendered unrecognizable. And I think you're hearing that a lot. And that's what the suburbs is all about right now in a lot of these places. And COVID feeds that, right? Because it's out of control and they have no one to turn mm. to whose information they can trust. And they think Trump is is leading them down the path of destruction on that front as much as he is on the racial front. Yeah. I mean, you talk about the uh, 
that race doesn't work, uh, Murphy, with people under 40. The problem is that he's also getting squeezed right, at old the people. top. He yeah. carried senior citizens last time. Uh, the way he's handled this COVID uh, uh, issue, I think, has been terribly damaging with these voters. Biden already had a pretty good toehold in there, uh, was a strong suit for him in the primaries. And now, uh, you know, the, they're among the groups that Trump carried last time that he's not carrying this time. The suburbs he won last time, he's losing by 20 points or more. Uh, they're independent yeah. voters he's losing. Uh, college-educated white voters he's losing. Uh, I mean, he really has, sh- and even among his supporters, you know, among uh, among non-college white women, he's winning, but he's yeah. winning by like 11 points, 10 points, not 27 points. Uh, evangelicals weren't that apparently thrilled with his hoisting of the Bible uh, as a political prop, but he is, uh, he's not doing as well even there. So I'm looking at these averages of the states. Uh, of of these battleground states. We all know the big four that he won last time that really gave him the presidency, Florida, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, and, and Pennsylvania. So Florida, on the average, he's down seven points. And Wisconsin, on the average, down 10 points. Pennsylvania, eight points. Michigan, 11 points. Beyond that, he's, uh, he's trailing by a significant margin in Arizona. Uh, he's behind in North Carolina by a significant, you know, uh, by more than a few points. Georgia is like an even state. I mean, yeah. so that's, you know, like if you, if he won every, if, uh, I think that there's like a hundred electoral votes, 101 electoral votes that Trump won last time where he is even or losing, uh, at this point. So my question to you guys, uh, and Murphy, let me start with you because you're the big Republican brain. You know, you're the guy <laughs> yeah. everybody goes to for wisdom. They they do exactly what I tell them. If Trump were rational and he had a rational organization, what, if anything, could he do now? Well, I'm going to, that is a great question. I just want to throw in one more piece of polling data because I saw something yesterday that pays into uh, John's point and yours. My uh, colleagues at Republican Voters Against Trump and I are out making trouble. I'm doing some very specialized polling in Florida. And among white Republicans, mostly suburban, college educated, we ask who's better during the time of strife to reunite the country. And 48% of white Republican college educated people are saying Joe Biden, you know, which is oh, to your yeah, point. Which is big. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, right. It's huge yeah, because it's right now, huge. whether it is geographically of Arizona or demographically of old people or thematically of reuniting the country, the Democrats are deep into Trump's end zone right now. And so these polls, this is an X-ray. If the electoral tomorrow, Trump would get clobbered. It would be huge. And th- this is what that looks like. So your question, X, how do you get out of it? Yes, I've X-rayed the hell out of it. Now, doctor, I'm asking <laughs> yeah, you. The corpse here with the- What treatment yeah. you- Prescribe prescribe a drug, So please. I'm looking at a guy on the gurney here with a railroad spike into his head. Uh, so now it's time to operate. Well, the obvious thing is- the obvious thing captain crisis if he married fauci and done the basics which was nod and say hell yes and damn it get going and i'm putting three generals in charge of the supply chain chop 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 he'd be doing much better now because all that art of the deal can do guy would be back well he can't do that instead he uh right you know he so but we can't jump into the way back machine no, but that- my point is the toolbox is so limited you could you could have told him to do that for a year and he'd eat the memo in front of you and set his hair on fire it's charlie manson so that's all gone so what if you do with your the campaign well one you try to destroy biden because biden is winning right now purely by not being trump and when biden comes out 
you know, the Biden guys got to be ready because the only it's all they got beat the hell out of corporate Democrat Joe Biden, who is going to cut a blank check to the progressives. He's going to go crazy on race. You're going to be paying caste slave reparations, start a huge culture war there and see if you can sucker the identity politics Democrats into playing that game. That is, you know, I think all they have left because Trump refuses to be fixable. There's one more thing, right? Which is, which, you know, was the layup of the Hannity thing last week when he asked him, what's your second term agenda? And, and Trump couldn't answer the question. <laughs> right, right. You know, it, was, it just, me, just me, me. a word salad came out of his mouth and he talked about a bunch of incoherent jibber jabber. But, you know, that's what Carl Christian Rove, your friend, Mike, is telling is telling Trump privately and, and saying to every Republican in the Senate that, that Trump must do is he must have a second term agenda. Of course, we all sit here and go, duh, you know, a, a, a president, a, a, an incumbent president running for election should have something, at least on paper, that he says he's going to do for the next four years. And Trump doesn't even have that. I'm not saying that fixes the problem. But I think, you know, if you if you took a poll of non never Trump Republican geniuses and strategists, what they would be saying to Trump is is you got to kill Biden and you got to have something that right, looks right. like of course. A, a second term agenda but Trump, I mean but I mean I, I raise it mainly to point out how as we, as we sit here like well what would that second term agenda be other than more Trump you know that's all he thinks and more Trump but he can't even say he can't even spit out an agenda right that, that's my point about the crisis cuz you know poor Carl is like the stiff neck general in the bunker saying listening to the rave and and Trump saying counterattack with the new agenda sir the agenda was destroyed 2 years ago coronavirus bill lies Churchill lies all this stuff is the playbook but can Trump do anything? Can he be managed? Or will he just talk to Sean Hannity and rely on his instincts all day? That, to me, is the biggest problem. Not so much the strategy, but getting Trump to do anything smart that gets in the way of his instincts, which are Republican primary yeah. is all voters. Yeah, I mean, you know, Trump believes that it was his instincts that got him here, and it's going to be hard to persuade him that his instincts aren't the way to get him uh, get him back. You mentioned Biden, and you said he's he's winning by just not being Trump. Look, everybody looks a lot smarter when they're 10 points ahead. Okay. Uh, you know, and so, but, but you do have to, you know, whether this dropped in his lap or not, and it's, it, it's, you know, it has been his good political fortune, A, that Trump has behaved as Trump, and B, that uh, he has been able to basically hang back and let Trump hang himself. You know, especially lately, I think they've been pretty adroit at sort of intervening in moments, uh, you know. Uh, well, well, and a little more than that, too, right? Also avoiding the trap. I mean, you know, I, I give them some credit um, for how they've handled the defund the police thing, mm -hmm. right? Which is, I'd you know, agree. Biden, there was not a moment, there was not a moment when they got sucked into that, you know, the, into giving Trump the ammunition that he would love to have had if Biden had said, yeah, I'm for defund the police. And, you know, he, I mean, I think his instinct personally, and, and David, you would know uh, as well, as much as I do, you know, that that's his instinct. He doesn't want, he's not going to be for that. He was never going to be for it. And no one around him, they all saw it immediately as the trap right. that it was and said, don't do right. it. And so they've, I mean, again, you can say that's not, doesn't take genius, but the reality is those guys took a lot of pounding. And, and I, I will say I did a little bit myself at the beginning where it was like, you can't just compete by staying in the basement. You know, Donald Trump has the airwaves. He's going to dominate the space. Yeah. And they were mm -hmm. like, they said at the time, there's like, really, you know, Let's let let's see how that goes for Donald Trump holding a two hour press conference every day at the White House mm -hmm. on coronavirus. And they turned out to be right in exercising discipline and being relatively strategic and, and surgical about where they've decided to intervene and about trying to stay out of trouble that would give Trump the ability to cast Biden as a tool of the left. 
at the same time, they have upped their game in terms of digital communications yes. and all the things that don't require that much of the candidate, but that deliver message out there. Now they're on the air uh, around the country. Um, he, uh, But Biden is, uh, like I said, he does come out at strategic moments. Uh, today, for mm -hmm. example, he's 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 doing a speech on uh, he's doing a speech on the coronavirus thing. He understands that Trump is wounded and he's going in to inflict more damage on him. Uh, and that's a smart thing to do. Yeah, they, they can really bounce off Trump with this and be Dr. Reality as opposed to rage fantasy. So it could it, he could have a great two week run now. When we would all agree, right, that the chief strategic thing that the Biden campaign has to do and I don't, don't mean that he that he that he can hide in the basement for the next four months or five months. But the chief strategic thing they have to do is keep this election being about Donald Trump. Yep. If this is uh, if this election is a referendum on Donald Trump, they win. And so uh, they need to do everything possible to to not let this election be about Joe Biden. And so far, you can't really fault them on on that big strategic front. They've won. I think it's two things. If I had the permanent marker, it would be yeah, it's about fire Trump, except for every debate night. So when in doubt, more debate prep, because that is when it will be about Joe Biden and he's got to hold his own. Yeah, I think I've said this before here. I, I think Trump is doing him a tremendous favor because the uh, the attacks of Trump, the relentless attacks that Biden can't put two sentences together. He can't give you a complete thought. Kind of remarkable, actually, when you consider Trump's <laughs> the own source, answers yeah. <laughs> to questions. But he has so lowered expectations for Biden in mm -hmm. these debates that if Biden shows up and is relatively coherent, you know, he's going to carry the day. And uh, and j I just remind everybody what the history of debates for presidents running for re-election is almost invariably they don't do well in the first debate they're not used to people being in their grill they haven't debated for four years and um you know i think trump is setting himself up but you know there is this um there is this david you still have a little ptsd from denver right now 100 you, you know in, in 2012 <laughs> i months in advance of the first debate i circled it in red because i understood the history of it and we did everything, we thought we did everything we could to avoid <laughs> repeating the mistakes of history. And we ended up, uh, you know, leaving Denver with our hats in our hands, uh, you know, and in deep, you know, in deep despair over that debate. It is very, very tough. So, um, you know, I think that um, I think that uh, Trump is doing uh, Biden a favor by lowering expectations. And you're right, Mike, he's got all this time at home. It's a great right, time to it. be boning up. And here's one other thing. One other thing on debates. As you know, you win a debate by anticipating as much as possible. And if you are prepared for every exigency and every, you know, thrust of your opponent and you turn it to your advantage, uh, you're going to win that debate. The thing about Donald Trump is he's about as subtle as a fart in a spacesuit. I mean, he is a guy who knows you, you know exactly where he's going to go. He may, you know, the presentation may vary, but the fundamental points are always going to be the same. He's very predictable. And therefore, uh, as bombastic as he can be, as much of a, a, a you know, a, a shtick guy as he can be, it's, it's easier to prepare for a guy like that than someone, you know, Mitt Romney kind of changed up on us in Denver. And that was one of the reasons why we had such a hard time with that debate. We didn't expect the guy who, to show up who showed up. He prepared well uh, for that debate. Trump is going to be Trump. 
and there's no other variety of Trump. Yeah, that's a good point. He's the atomic clock of being Trump. By the way, thank you for ruining every spacewalk movie now for the rest yeah, of my life Jesus. with that subtext. I know you want to see you want to see Ad you want to see Ad Astra now. You're thinking about that, like, <laughs> yeah. like Brad Pitt, Brad, Brad Pitt for in that spacesuit. I'll say this though that you know the other thing. Who's the other most predictable politician? in America right now. Joe Biden. Uh, in a much different way. Well, the other most predictable politician, Bernie Sanders. And you think yeah. about what happened when Biden, yeah, exactly. when Biden had his one-on-one -on -one debate with Bernie Sanders, expectations were low and people had said Biden had not performed well in the debates. He had, he'd gotten a little better in 2020 than he had been in 2019, but they were very confident. And you know, David, that Ron Klain, who has done more debate prep than anybody on the yeah. Democratic side, they said, you know, when he, when he got one-on-one, -on -one, with Bernie Sanders, that he would do fine. And the truth was, in the yes. first 10 minutes of that debate, it was like, okay, Biden basically has stood up to Sanders. He's totally fine. He cleared the bar. And I think that what they are thinking is that they're going to have the same thing again this fall, but with ex expectations even driven lower for the reasons you just said about what Trump did. And they are they are not, I, I do not sense an enormous amount of anxiety on their part, partly because Trump is helping them so much and because they remember the Sanders thing, that that one-on-one -on -one debate with Sanders is the dynamic that they think they can replicate with Trump in the fall. There's this crazy stuff, Murphy, uh, rolling around that, you know, Trump really doesn't want to debate, that he's not going to debate. Trump has to debate. Trump needs these debates. He is in such a hole that he has to have them. And it's insane to think that he's not going to show up. Yeah, I, just quickly to John's point, I agree on all that. During the primaries, we saw Biden be good, particularly as it narrowed. We also saw him be bad. you know. And I just wonder how much Biden is taking this seriously because biden can go off into bob dole legislate i don't know i i i just i i agree he's set up with expectations to knock down everything but if he doesn't then it could it could snowball a bit yeah right right which is why trump has to show up but uh i will say this about the debates in which he did poorly this year were when there were 10 or 12 people on the stage uh, I don't know that he's particularly comfortable uh, debating women and, and, and minority candidates. And, uh, you know, I think Donald Trump is just fine for him as an opponent in the debate. So we'll see. Obviously, it's 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 great to speculate about. We'll see yeah. when the when the games are actually uh, played. Biden has never been on stage with somebody who's going to look at your son's a crook, you're senile, release your medical records, your grandfather owned a slave. It'll just be bang, 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 half of it untrue. And Biden's never been to that circus before. I think he can prep for he it. He has not. But that that yeah. is a loose bolt no, you're on the right. plane. You're right, but he can prep for it. Like, yeah. like we said, Trump is Trump, and so you prepare for Trump. The other uh, factor that the here is there's not going to be a massive audience for these debates, <laughs> uh, live audience. I don't oh. mean... <laughs> I mean, no, obviously there's going to be a yeah, massive COVID. They're both going to be, it's going to be like quiz show. They're in plexiglass. But I mean, the atmospherics, the atmospherics in the room are going to, you know, Trump feeds yeah, he off needs of it. the right, crowd. Right, that's true. And I don't think he's going to have that kind of crowd. So we'll see about that. And the doesn't have to do debate thing, just because that's such a juicy thing real quick. Yeah. I went through this a little bit with Arnold, you know. I think Trump doesn't have to do debates. Nixon didn't. But it's a mistake. Trump's losing. Debates are one of the few of things course, he's got yes. left. Yes. So, you know, not only uh, my guess is he'll do a big Sinatra thing where if the debate's not at Mar-a-Lago and Hannity's, I won't do it. I'm the star. Without me, you got no debate, no ratings. He'll play all that bullshit. And at the end, he'll fold because he can't look weak. Yes. The biggest mistake for them would be one debate. They need multiple to get some momentum and keep going. 
Trump cannot resist the lure of the yeah, thing just too. because the audience will be so massive. And Trump acknowledge like Trump running from the debate would be the ultimate. He's after spending months saying the Joe you, you Biden can't do sleepy Joe and then run away from the debate. Yes. Say, oh, he's a senile old man. He's too tired. He can't he can't think straight. He doesn't even know what he's doing in his own campaign. You're going to say that for six months. And then Donald Trump, with all of his with his bombast and brio and ego and narcissism, is going to say, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not and have the press crush him for being afraid to debate Joe Biden. There is no world where Donald Trump does not do multiple debates against Joe Biden. No world. Can I switch up on you guys for a second? Because in a normal world, if a story surfaced <laughs> Duh. that the president of the United States uh, was told that Russians were paying a bounty to the Taliban to kill American troops, uh, that would be a five alarm fire. With everything else that's going on, it hasn't yet reached that stage, but it really feels like it is getting worse and worse for him because their answer, well, let's hear the answer of his press secretary here. I think we have some tape on that. Kaylee McNaney. The U.S. receives thousands of reports a day on intelligence, and they are subject to strict scrutiny. While the White House does not routinely comment on alleged intelligence or internal deliberations, the CIA director, NSA, National Security Advisor, and the chief of staff can all confirm that neither the president nor the vice president were briefed on the alleged Russian bounty intelligence. Hmm. So that was yesterday. Today, the story is that it was placed in his presidential daily briefing in February, and others, Bolton and others, uh, have said apparently uh, that uh, that this was known and he was he was briefed. Uh, now, it could be Trump could plausibly contend. Well, it may have been in my presidential daily briefing, but I don't read that anyway, so I missed it. But uh, this story has been kicking around for a long time. It is a, it would be there's no good answer. It's astonishing to think the president of the United States wouldn't be told that. And it is almost, you know, he likes to use the word traitor. It's almost treasonous to uh, to say that to, to think that the president of the United States would know that and do nothing about it. Is this story going to grow? I think it is because they're lying. We had that spray tan sophist out there with the word dancing. Um, (laughs) And, you know, Trump may never read the he's got the defense of I'm too stupid and ill-informed to really know. But it's too big a thing for the president not to have at least been verbally briefed or mentioned to. So, you know, uh, they're digging another castle of lies. I think it will get bigger. And it, it is just it's stunning. I like to point out that Kaylee McEnany said on May 1, I will never lie to you. Mm. And she has basically lied every single day since Well, then. everybody, that's what Sean Spicer said, too. The thing is, yeah, if you right. if you are the spokesperson for a congenital liar. Pathological liar. Yeah, yeah. you're going to lie. I mean, it's just, it's it's yeah. required. That's part of the job. So here's the thing, like, I think you, you boil it down to this, right? It is, I think, quite clearly either treason if Trump was told and and just decided that he wasn't going to do anything about it, was going to let Putin off the hook. You know, we always say all roads. It still is the case that, you know. The, he invited him to the join the rejoin the G7. G, G, yeah. G8. Right. Exactly. So, so, you know, is that if Trump was aware and didn't like say, well, we need, okay, there's dissenting opinions about the at- intelligence. We need to figure this out. Like I'm, this, this, this is an outrageous escalation of Russian aggression against Americans, putting out bounties on, on American soldiers, uh, you know, e- either it's treason or it's one of the most grotesque examples of incompetence on the part of the administration um, that we've yet seen. 
Because if Trump didn't know, you know, if, if they kept it from him, if they were afraid to tell him because, as Pelosi suggested, that he might go and tell Putin that he might be, then that speaks to a kind of like crazy kind of reverse stovepiping of intelligence in the administration. I mean, we've gone from the Bush administration where the intelligence process got politicized in order to give Bush the, the, the intelligence he wanted to this one where it's possible that the intelligence briefers are like, we can't tell Trump <laughs> the truth or anything that resembles the truth because we're afraid that he's going to go and, and leak it to Putin or somehow act in America, yeah. a, against American interests. It is, it is a crazy story. And I'll tell you why I think it has legs in addition to the fact that they're lying and the fact that it is so off the charts bad is that you, you see Tom Tillis yesterday? Yeah. Did you see Cory yeah, Gardner yeah. No, yesterday? No, I was going to ask you about see, that. You, you, you see the vulnerable Republican Senate candidates coming out, and again, not not directly repudiating Donald Trump, but saying we got to get to the bottom of this. Yeah. We got to have hearings. We got to figure this out. This is again one of these things where Republicans, we've asked for three and a half years. When will Republicans get off the Trump train? And the answer has always been, in my view, when it costs them more to stick with him than to when it costs him more to stick with him than it costs to leave him. And they're now at the point where his where his numbers are getting low enough where people are looking up and saying, you know what? You know, I'm past the primary situation now, and this is a fast ticket to to hell here. I got to get, I got to start to look out for my own politics. And I think if Trump doesn't turn it around, well, this is one of the many contributing factors. If Trump doesn't start to turn it around by Labor Day, you're going to see a lot of of Senate Republicans who are going to be running away from Donald Trump. It's starting yeah, now, yeah, yeah. but it's too late. This is what always happens. They they yeah. if they want equity for doing it, they needed to do it when there was pain. Now they're just piling on like weasels, and it's too damn late. You know, I'll give the Senate Republicans a little credit on the russia stuff is one of the only places they have in the past with sanctions and everything taken a bit of a walk from sure. trump but they've been timid about it and now again it is treason it's incompetent treason too that's the amazing thing as you, you pointed out it's a it's kind of a hybrid and a new thing invented by the trump administration incompetent treason yeah well the senate the senate republicans have been tougher than trump and ironically that's what he rests his case on he says that no one's been tougher on russia than me because they foisted all these sanctions on him that he didn't want and sat on for as long as he could uh sit on them but you know liz cheney was very tough on this uh over in the house mccall the the uh the uh the ranking republican on uh, foreign relations over there uh you know so that you do see this murphy as a vehicle for republicans who who want want to sort of distance themselves, but also don't want to distance themselves too much. Yeah, and you know, look, the Republic. I joined this thing at the Georgetown College Republicans in 1980, 81, because of the Russians, Cold War. So it's kind of in the in the Republican DNA. This this really strikes a nerve. All right, let's take a minute to hear from one of our esteemed sponsors. You know, Gibbs, every once in a while uh, on Twitter, people will write in and say, Axe, you make me nauseous. But nausea is nothing to joke about. It's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach. It's not. Yeah. And and, and like you're on your way to something good, a, a celebration or party or something. And now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it, except there is an answer now. And it's called Relief Band. Tell us about Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with 
motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects, zero, for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through Relief Band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with Relief Band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. I'm telling you, Relief Band works. We know from our own experience, we sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to ReliefBand.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to ReliefBand, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D, Dot com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping. Now, one last thing. I know we've got the fabled mailbag, but VP yes. update. I see Jill Biden was out uh, with Kamala Harris. Is that a signal, you Kremlinologist? How do you interpret that, and what do you think is going on in the VP race? Heilman, you, you've you been uh, on the uh, Kamala Harris train from the beginning. Do you Did you read the the joint appearance of uh, Jill Biden? Because there there had been these, ta- uh, these rumors that she was really steamed when Kamala uh, mugged Biden at the first debate, and uh, that might be a uh, impediment to her uh, being selected. The campaign, in fact, has put out a statement denying that. But did you did you see that as a harbinger? You could read it another way, which is if she doesn't get picked, they wanted to make sure that people didn't say it was because Jill Biden vetoed her. Yes, I, I, I will say just to clarify something that has always been true, but I'll say it again. When it comes to beep stakes, which, um, as you know, David, I've I've covered a lot of beep stakes and 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 and. I mean, in a lot of depth and book at book length, <laughs> right? <laughs> and and I, I I when I talk about this, I always talk about it not in terms of like what I think should be, but in terms of what is, like what the reality is. And my view about Kamala is not about like I'm not on her train in the sense that I'm for her. I'm just saying. No, I understand. I I, I know. I, I think she's that. no, no. I'm just saying. I I've always thought she's the front runner, and I still think she's the front runner, mm-hmm. like the prohibitive front runner, not the guaranteed selection. But I've seen nothing that's happened that's changed what I hear from Biden world about what Joe Biden is looking for and about uh, the the very close circle of people he's actually confiding with about what he really thinks about this, what he thinks of her, what he thinks is important. And I've not, there's nothing that's moved. I think the Jill Biden thing, I I believe it is true that she was very pissed last summer. I think that the degree to which that has stayed uh, with her has ebbed to a large extent, I think there is still some vibe in Biden world that they don't love the fact that they think Harris is self-serving 
and that she would not be the one thing that she wouldn't be that Joe Biden understands was important to his relationship with Barack Obama was that Barack Obama never thought Joe Biden was looking out for Joe Biden. He always thought Joe Biden was looking out for Barack Obama. And there is a worry in Biden world that Kamala Harris is so ambitious and calculated <laughs> well, think? that that and, and so that is I'm just that's reporting. That is what they are concerned about. It's a, no, no, no. But it's also it's also the fact that whoever he picks very likely will be the nominee for president in 2024. Mm-hmm. So. You know, when 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 Obama chose Biden, it, you know, Biden was already 65 and there was uh, this sense that he probably wasn't ever going to run for president uh, again. Right. Right. So but I think but I think he is I think he has thought that he needed he's he's been focused on a couple things. How does what's his personal relationship like with the person? Is he comfortable with them? Do they clear the bar with are they actually ready to be president on day one? And do they clear the bar with the filter, the media filter, as being like instantly that person's qualified to be president? And 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 ideologically and on policy, the fact that the left doesn't love Kamala Harris on things like defund the police makes Biden more comfortable with her rather it, than less. I th- I'll be I'll tell you the last thing I'll say, and then Mullet might go with all of his reasons why I think Kamala <laughs> Harris is a bad pick. He just has to get his pitch in for Gina Raimondo. He already did. I, I'm off the hook now. Go ahead, John. I'll tell you who the other person is that's in the contention right now. And, you know, as always, and David, you can explain to the world why you always need to have three at the end. And, you know, you're worried about someone gets a DUI and someone, you know, you know, got to have some options. But you always have the candidate always has someone at the very top of their list and then a couple other people floating around. But the person who's getting a surprisingly serious look from Biden is Warren. And he Biden keeps telling people in his inner circle that he really likes her. Um, he he's very again for the same reasons ready to be president, but has a, a much closer personal affinity with Warren that I thought was true. Uh, maybe even the last time that we all talked, and she is getting more. She's clearly going to be in that final three. And if I thought if I were, I don't think she's close to displacing Kamala as the front runner, but she's the clear right now. I believe the number two pick in that universe, and the third spot is still kind of open for open for for bidding you know i'm gonna do the thing now where i stare at the camera so this will be theater of the mind and there's a spiral backdrop behind me i'm wearing a tuxedo with a uh, goatee i predict it will not be kamala harris i'll take the field against her bet on it 25 cents you want to elaborate you look very good, by the way, but you want to elaborate on <laughs> Well, that? with my hypnotic circle. Uh, no, I, I think... It'd be better for radio if you could explain that. I think... Rather than just say I, I, th- I predict it will not be Kamala because, one, she's a bad candidate. Two, every Democratic Senate staffer and beyond knows she just does not have the reputation of President Ready, and I think the Biden people know that. So I think the Jill thing might have been Kabuki theater. And do I know? No. But I just... Forget about other people I prefer. I just don't think it'll be her or C. She is the front runner in CW. I could be wrong, but I'm taking I'm taking the don't on this. Axe, what's your view? Luckily, we don't record these, so we're not going to be held accountable for uh, our predictions here. But uh, yeah, thank goodness. <laughs> Can you imagine if? Oh, John, I honestly don't know. And and what I am told is that he doesn't really know yet. That he's really mulling this thing over. Kamala Harris is a she she has uh, obvious assets. She also has the some of the problems that Mike raised. She started off a presidential campaign, probably other than Biden, as the person who is getting the most buzz uh, as someone who could if the if who might be able to pull the whole thing off. And she never made it to Iowa. And one of the reasons was she ran a bad campaign and she didn't answer questions very well. Uh, and, uh, you know, one thing you want in your, uh, 
vice presidential candidate is someone who's not going to make mistakes. So, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, you hear all kinds of things. Uh, Val Demings, Frank Bruni was pushing my great Senator uh, Tammy Duckworth uh, over the weekend, who is a, in fact, a heroic American. I don't know if she's how much in the mix she really is. We've talked about the governors. I don't know if I were Biden, my advice to him would, would be to, and I know it sounds almost unworthy of a hack show, but I would say, honest to God, follow your gut and pick the person you think would be the best vice president and the best potential president. Uh, because if you feel that way, others will probably feel that way too. Uh, but if you pick someone who you don't think would be the best president and you do have questions about, likely that's not going to end up well, mm-hmm. either in the short term or the long term. So that would be my advice to him. Murphy, let me ask you this, mm-hmm. just because you're always into, you've said it once today, and, and I actually always find it compelling, your argument for, in general, the, the risk mitigation thing, given given where Biden stands in the race. So what do you think of, and I've heard your case on, on Harris, why you think that that's not the risk mitigating choice here. What do you think about Warren as a pick in terms of this, in terms of that factor, risk mitigation? She's not going to make mistakes, right? That's the thing that David just pointed out a second ago. War, Warren, an incredible message discipline. She's very, very strong. She's yeah. not going to make mistakes, right? Yeah, no, no. Palpably ready to be president. Yeah, better yes. better candidate, more intellectual horsepower, won't make the kind of mistakes Kamala will. I worry ideologically, unless she's willing to get a, you know, a bowl and eat a lot of center of cereal and back off the scary economic stuff, she's an opportunity for Trump. So who's going to be running economic policy? Are we going to have lefty, lefty, lefty? Um, there's, there's some, there's some danger here. I, I'm for the safe pick. I wish Klobuchar was still in. I'd love to find out what scared her out. Of course, Gia Raimondo government. And, you know, even Val Demings though, you know, when you look at a police department going backwards, she's a former police chief, it's good and bad. Um, you know, I, I don't see as much risk as Kamala with Warren, but I see risk. And if I were Joe, I'd be like, we got to keep this about Trump. Do the Bill Clinton thing. Pick a weaker version of Joe and Al Gore to a Bill Clinton. Yeah. Well, you, you, no, neither of you guys mentioned Whitmer. I'd be all for Whitmer, much ahead of uh, anybody I've mentioned other than Ramundo. For whatever reason, she seems to have really slipped. Maybe because she's just so consumed with I with the, with the COVID thing in, in, uh, in Michigan, but she really has again in, in terms of my reporting she seems to she was very she was a, a top tier candidate um a couple months ago and is not does not seem to be getting nearly as much discussion as she did then i'm not sure why that is you hear more about tammy baldwin now in that world than you hear about in terms of a midwest white woman you hear more about her than you do about whitmer right now in in biden world and again i'm not trying to like push tammy baldwin but i yeah. that name bubbles up there are new names getting thrown in all the time you never know and the governor of new mexico that that name yes. uh, luhan grisham is is popped up a lot too you know on the warren thing uh, elizabeth warren is a brilliant person she proved herself to be a very strong candidate. She has a mastery of econo- you know, econ- economic policy, even if it's not policy that Murphy would embrace. Uh, but she's, she's fluent uh, and, uh, and someone who's palpably capable of becoming uh, president. The question I have, and I raised it here before, is, is it too much octane for the tank? Does it lend itself to the Republican message, which is, Biden's just a Trojan horse. He's not going to be the president. Mm-hmm. She's going to be the president. Uh, because the fact is, Elizabeth Warren is, uh, you know, she's not the thing that pops in your head when you think about number two. 
And, uh, you know, she's a, she's sort of been her own show all her political career and all her public career. So that would be the, uh, that would be the argument, but she's certainly, I mean, just by sheer, you know, sheer intellect and ability, she, she belongs on that list. You gotta be worried though, if you're Joe people that she'll diminish him, you know, for those reasons. Let's take a minute to do an ad and we'll be right back. All right, our first question is suspiciously from David in a town full of dead voters who keep voting. Hmm, where could it be? <laughs> Given the recent polling, David asks, what are the predictions for the Senate? Do the Democrats take control? And if so, do they tinker with the filibuster, so-called nuclear option, the way the Republicans did? David Axelrod, what do you think? Well, first of all, let me say, David, I deeply admire your name and your question. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say that Democrats are a a pretty strong favorite to take over the Senate now, and Trump's uh, Trump's uh, failures have put more states uh, on the table here. You know, there were four that Democrat Democrats will probably need four if Doug Jones doesn't win in Alabama, which is still very uh, likely. Um, they need four seats, Arizona. Uh, seems like a very good bet for them where uh, Kelly is running against McSally. Kelly, Mark Kelly looks like he is in a very strong position. John Hickenlooper, we should point out today, is in a primary. Uh, there was some nervousness that he had blundered his way into a closer primary than he needed to, but now it seems like that thing has straightened out, and he's still, a, I think, a pretty considerable favorite uh, against Corey Gardner. Uh, Susan Collins uh, in Michigan. Uh, I'm sorry, Susan Collins in Maine against uh, Sarah Gideon. Uh, I think Gideon is a favorite now because of Trump's uh, problems. And the same is true with Cal Cunningham in North Carolina and Tillis, the incumbent. I think those four seats are looking pretty good for Democrats, but they don't have to rely just on those because now you've got Steve Bullock in Montana who looks like a pretty good bet. And, you know, Montana has a history of even though they vote Republican in presidential races, electing Democratic senators, he's doing well with the uh, handling the virus up there. Uh, I think he's uh, he's a guy who could uh, win. I also think Iowa is a place that you got to keep an eye on. Joni Ernst is the incumbent. She's a weak incumbent. She's in the 30s. I think that's a potential win. The two Georgia seats, I think, are going to be in play. Um, and Trump's weakness uh, is going to help with that. So I think Democrats are in a very strong position. As for the filibuster, I personally think they should do away with the filibuster. I think the filibuster has outlived its usefulness, uh, and they should just do away with it. We waste so much time, uh, so much time uh, on that, and it's basically now become a vehicle for a kind of a tyranny of the minority uh, rather, how about we try? How about we try democracy for a little while? In the US? Yeah. yeah, that'd be a good idea. Yeah. How about that? Careful, yeah. how about careful. That? It got us where we are now. How about a little fifty? How about a little fifty plus one? Hey, I, let me I, ask I'm, you this question yeah. to both of you. It looks like Amy McGrath is going to win that that primary in Kentucky now. The, the The results are in enough that the the serious forecasters are saying she's got it. Is there any chance Amy McGrath can take could uh, could she, could mount a real? She could be funded to the hilt. Is there any chance you could put a scare in Mitch McConnell? A scare, yeah. He held the race of his life, but I would not bet against him. I'd want big odds. 
I think that uh, he has invested millions already in degrading her. She goes into the general election with a serious uh, uh, unfavorable there. He's not popular either, but, you know, McConnell's never won on the basis of his bright, cheerful personality or, you know, his hail fellow well-met uh, relationship with voters. He, he wins them by destroying his opponents. And, uh, you know, I think it would be surprising if uh, he lost that seat, but she's going to have all the money she needs. And I think he will be pinned down there protecting his flank. Yeah. And I, I got to chime in. I got my issues with Mitch on the Trump thing and everything, but he also wins Kentucky because he delivers for the state and he's a good fit for Kentucky. It is a right of center state. Uh, we'll see what happens uh, on the Senate. I totally agree. It's just like the presidential, the Dems are on offense everywhere. The Republicans on offense, nowhere. That is a bad sign. So, John Heilman, Meg says, you guys early on indicated that you thought that Democrats uh, should hold their convention as a production and bring in a Hollywood producer put together. I don't know about the Hollywood producer part, but it appears they're planning for basically a television convention. Wonder what your thoughts are about what they're planning. Along the same lines, do you think Republicans will be able to pull off the in-person disaster in Jacksonville, or will they be driven out of the state to avoid another super spreader event? Finally, any chance that the debates will be able to be held without an audience. So you take those and that'll take us right into next week. Well, I thought for a while that, that, you know, if you, if you started from scratch in 2020 and said, you know, we're just going to get rid of this anachronistic form of a convention with, you know, the, these balloons in the ceiling and the party streamers and all this ridiculousness that you could design with the right kind of digital and, and television expertise, you could design a thing that would be infinitely cheaper and infinitely more efficient in terms of doing the work of a modern convention. So Democrats now have a chance to try to do that. The, the problem, of course, they didn't like take two years to do it. They're trying to do it on short notice. But that is, in fact, what they're doing in Milwaukee. They're going to have three hours of programming every day. It's going to be a purely television thing. One hour, roughly, is going to be live from Milwaukee in a, stu- a television studio, basically. Another hour is going to be pre-recorded. Another hour is going to be live from other satellite locations around the country. That's my understanding of basically what they're doing. And, you know, I, I think with a lot of good pre-recorded stuff, you know, they got, you know, some people making some some great films. See, Davis Guggenheim, who I know you know, David, has made brilliant convention films for the last few Democratic candidates, including your boss, your former boss, uh, is working on Biden films. Um, I think they're going to make... It's going to be, they can make a great television show. They can, whether they will or not, we'll wait and see. But I, I think one of the big challenges is going to be, they still imagine Joe Biden is going to go to Milwaukee and speak in, in that, in not in the big arena now, but in the convention center down the street. And there's a lot of concern about whether the press is going to want to sh- show up for it because the news organizations are afraid of COVID. So they're, they're sort of worried that there might be, they might not get any coverage. They've gone from, you know, the, a giant spectacle with thousands and thousands of credentials to having maybe having trouble getting television cameras to even show up. And is Biden going to speak in front of an empty auditorium? He said the other day he expects to speak in front of an empty room. How's that going to look on TV? I mean, that's a, it's a, a challenge. Well, I mean, they're going to have to, they're going to have to make it adjust because I don't think a 30 minute address of any kind under those circumstances is going to fly. But I think it's a great opportunity for Biden because, uh, you know, once again, events have conspired in his, to his advantage because uh, I think he's going to have to do less and the convention will carry more. And if they make compelling television, listen, man, a bunch of uh, fat ass politicians making speeches and people in funny hats isn't very good television. Right. So right. Uh, th- this is an opportunity for Democrats. I mean, it's nice to see it's, it's nice to see the roar of the crowd. Everybody likes to see a big crowd. You like there's it's hard to generate to show enthusiasm. Hey, crank up the sound machine. Yeah. Right. <laughs>
<laughs> just having always been running against Democrats, I think that they should make this thing simple and focused because I agree with David, windy politicians. I hope it's not the identity festival. They got two stories to tell, the Joe Biden story and the plan to unite us beyond COVID and bring everything back through you know raw competence. And they've got troops in the front lines that could make very compelling kind of material. And, and I hope they know less really, really done well is more. I'll throw in one thing about Jacksonville, though, too, because, you know, there's a there's a guy on this podcast who did a little polling around this. And I do think, you know, if you think about what happened in uh, in Tulsa, you know, not just the super spreader element of it, potentially, but also just the disappointment of people not showing up because they were afraid it was going to be a super spreader. You now look at what we're hearing out of Jacksonville, which is that there's not a lot of enthusiasm for this thing and a lot of fear of both covid and, of you know, having some kind of giant uh you know race conflagration in the street in the streets of jacksonville i I think the the democrats are going to end up being pretty happy with having a very controlled television broadcast out in milwaukee when what could happen to trump in jacksonville could be incredibly ugly there was two months ago the biden people were terrified that they were going to be fighting this asymmetric war trump was going to do a great convention in the traditional mode and they were going to be stuck with one hand behind their back i think increasingly they should be glad that they have one hand behind their back because the thing that trump's going to do in jacksonville could easily explode in his face Totally. Two polls out now showing they don't want it. I have a question here from Mike Murphy from a a, a fan of the show named Rebecca, Rebecca with a K. She says, I'm in my mid thirties and have been a stay at home mom to my kids for the last eight years. I would love to do some work in the political sphere, but feel like I'm kind of old to jump in, but also wouldn't know where to start with that career path. Any advice for someone like me, Murph? Oh, absolutely, Rebecca. It is never too late. Look at Biden. Hell, he's 117 and he's doing fine. So this is a year because of COVID, you're going to have to be working virtually. But there's a ton you can do. Plug into the campaigns, not not only the Biden presidential or maybe the local Senate in your state or congressional, but there are probably local campaigns for state office. Lots of places. Find your favorites. Contact them. You can make calls. You can raise money. You can organize online. There's lots you can do. Just dive in. Use the opportunity of a presidential race to get some experience and build a network and take it from there. But the door's wide open. People who work and hustle do well in politics. So full speed ahead. Good luck. On that point, I did a uh, Axe Files yesterday. I recorded one that will go up on Thursday with Shannon Watts, who uh, was a uh, a professional who was sta- who was who became a, a stay at home mom uh, for a period of time. And after Newtown started an anti gun uh, organization uh, that now has six million members and is competing with the NRA, uh, and it is largely composed of. Uh, people like Rebecca, who are working from their homes and uh, organizing from their homes uh, online. So that's a that's a good example to emulate mm-hmm. and a good podcast to listen to. <laughs> Available on your podcast dial. And don't forget Believer <laughs> on Amazon.com at the absolutely value price. Of, I mean, it, it wouldn't hurt. Yeah, it, yeah. That no, it's terrific. Either. I've read it. Read it. Okay, look, the hamster is starting to slow down on the wheel. We've, we've hit our time limit, so we will zotch last call this week. But we'll be back next week. And John Heilman, big thanks to you for joining us here on The Hackaroos. Always my pleasure, guys. All right. And Murphy, don't forget to feed the hamster. I'll see you next week. <laughs> see you then. Bye.